Hey, Kareem Sirajuddin here, founder of Nude Human Consulting. The Coffee with Kareem podcast aims to provide Muslims and people of all backgrounds a space to share their life gifts, meet dynamic guests, and enhance the human experience one cup of coffee at a time. Sit back and sip. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have an esteemed guest, Ustad Joe Bradford. He is an American scholar of Islam, an instructor, and ethical investment advisor. He regularly lectures on topics such as Islamic finance, Sharia law, legal theory, and financial ethics. Don't forget to check out joebradford.net for more information on his work and projects. Brother Joe, thank you so much for being on the show today. Waalaikumsalam. I appreciate you inviting me on. All right. So I heard you actually on the Mad Mamluks myself. Shout out to the brothers there. I love you guys. And uh, I, I was got a great episode, by the way. Pardon? Your episode on there was great. I think one of the better, the, the best episodes that I've heard on there. Akramakamallah. Which one uh, are you referring to? The Dead Bedrooms uh, one or? Uh, no, the, the one after that. I didn't hear the Dead Bedrooms one. Even I forgot what was the other one on, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Mashallah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I heard you there and I, I reached out to you after that. So we've been kind of back and forth uh, getting in touch. And um, finally, alhamdulillah, we were able to meet. So I'm, I'm very blessed on this Friday to to get to conversate with you. And uh, what I'm what I found really profound about your perspectives on on your on the show was, you know, I was like, awesome, you know, an American Islamic scholar. And I know we have, alhamdulillah, a handful of those in the United States, obviously. But um, I definitely appreciated your points of view. So I'm very excited to pick your brain today. And what I kind of wanted to start it off with today was, you know, as American Muslims, um, and I'm assuming you're a convert, is that correct, sir? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, you know, my wife is a convert. Um, I, I've dealt done counseling for a lot of converts, and uh, there always seems to be a tension between this idea of, well, what's is what is the true Islam? You know, and I always ask people if Islam's the truth, then what is the true Islam? Because there's a lot of ideas and cultural expressions of Islam out there, and it can be really confusing. So I guess the first question I want to ask you is: Is there such a thing? As pure Islam, because obviously any revelation that comes from the divine, there's going to be a sociocultural pretext of which this revelation comes into, like the Prophet Muhammad was an Arabian man. And so naturally, you're going to have an Arabian, um, you know, seasoning, if you will, to the Islamic um, to the Islamic tradition. So I wanted to first uh, get your thoughts on that. Is there such thing as pure Islam? Why or why not? And, and how would we even start unpacking that in your opinion? So, you know, a uh, very relevant question, and I think it has a lot to do with the way that people form their their ideas and 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 mold their their personal practice of their faith to, um, you know, to what's in their mind. And, you know, is there a pure Islam? I think that that assumes a few things. Um, and most of those things which are assumed are kind of in the mind of the person who's answering that question um, when we talk about, you know, people in the community. So what does it mean to be pure? Um, what is what what is Islam? Well, Islam is submission to God Almighty and um, through the obedience and following of his prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, and so, you know, what is it that God and his messenger want from us in any particular instance is 
uh, is essentially what the what the rule of Islam is. You know, that's the general precept of Islam, and all of that going back, obviously, um, to you know, worshiping God alone and the tawhid of 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 God, the, the the unicity or the oneness of God is the 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 fundamental basis of everything in in Islam. So. You know, your question reminds me of uh, the second verse in Surah Az-Zumar um, that says, uh, "Inna anzalna ilayk." Well, the first verse is, "Inna anzalna ilayk al-kitab bil-haqi fa'budillaha muhdisa lahu din First verse says, "Indeed, we have revealed to you the book in truth." So worship God, being pure to Him in faith. Um, some might translate it as sincere, sincere to Him in religion, but I prefer the word mukhlas to be to to be translated as purity um, and deen to be translated as faith because religion sometimes takes on dogmatic tones then it says Allah is pure faith not for God rhetorical question right um, so we, we I think before when, you know when we're, when we're talking about pure Islam many times it's used as a tool in the community um, to kind of pressure people into what our personal preconceived notions of what Islam should be. Um, and that can sometimes take on a, a form which is um, antagonistic. It can take on a form which is political. It can take on a form which is cultural. Um, it can take a form which is contrarian. Uh, and all of those play out because what we're doing is projecting our personal pr uh, dispositions and presumptions onto the faith. So, you know, um, I, I had a I had a teacher and a mentor when I was living overseas studying, uh, and he was from the middle of Saudi Arabia, which is known to be, uh, you know, um, a very a very harsh environment. Uh, you know, and, 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 and very austere. And, you know, he said, he said to me, he said, you know what our problem here is? We take our harsh culture that grew out of the desert, wrap it in a cloak of Islam, and then present it to the world as, as if it's Islam. And we, we need you not to do that. Um, you know, so when we talk about what is pure Islam, I think we really have to, we really have to understand that not you know, not fulfilling a personal cultural mandate, or, or should I say personal cultural mandate is not something which is uh, part and parcel of Islam. It may coincide with the faith. It may be supported by the faith. It may be amended by the faith. It may be negated by the faith. But the faith is supreme. Um, you know, this idea of iman, this idea of deen, this idea of, uh, of uh, you know, ummah, of being a, a community is is greater than any other concept without being antagonistic or destructive to it. One of the one of the challenges, however, is is now that because so many Muslim cultures and ethnicities and nationalities and backgrounds see their personal cultures, nationalities, backgrounds, whatever, you know, cultural proclivities as synonymous with Islam, there develops a certain, a certain uh, uh, inclination to describe things from, let's say, the East in Islamic terms and describe things from the West in 
non-Islamic terms, to describe you know, things in the East as anti-colonial and to describe things in the West as, as colonialist. Um, and that, can, that denies the, the very clear history of uh, cultural appropriation that happened, that denies the whole, the history of, of uh, shall we say, um, it's the word that I'm looking for, uh, you, know, syncre you know, syncretism uh, and, and, and synthesis of cultures. And, and, and so, you know, I remember one time being in Mecca, myself and a good friend of mine, we were there for the last 10 nights. We went for Tarawih. And I had been reading, uh, I had been reading a lot about fashion in the medieval, you know, or in the early Islamic period, about just what, you know, what kind of clothes did people wear? Uh, and there had been some some interesting books that had been written where they actually brought the descriptions and then had people draw pick you know like artists draw pictures based on those descriptions. Um, and when you start to look at the fashions of the Muslim world and what people would call Muslim clothing, many times if you would just look a generation before Islam reached that country, you would see the same exact clothing. But because people have been you know, if you look, for example, if you look at, at, at uh, Falahin, you know, you look at like farmers from the Said, right, in Egypt, they uh -huh. wear they wear these hats that are kind of elongated and stuff like that. Um, you know, you can if if you go to the Egyptian National Library, I mean Egyptian Egyptian National Museum in uh, Tahrir Square, you'll see that same fashion in Egypt for centuries, even before the Islamic period, right? Um, but now it's become synonymous with what Muslims wear because Egyptian is now a majority Muslim country. Um, but at the same time, Christians in Egypt in the rural areas would wear that. You go to Lebanon, uh, certain parts of Syria, people still wear the kafiya or the shimag or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so when people come and are kind of thrown into the pool of not knowing if they're going to sink or swim in the United States, uh, or where, wherever they may be, but I'm speaking obviously from my experience in the United States, they start to equate things that were from back home with, you know, as being synonymous with with Islam, and that, and that's and that's not bad, but it can be dangerous because it can deny people who are not from that background their own kind of you know natural cultural progression within the faith or under the umbrella of the faith, should I say? Right. You know, another analogy that comes up for me, did you uh, ever get into the 90s rock and 90s grunge movement? Were you that cool or? Uh, I don't know. I don't think I was that cool. To tell you the truth. <laughs> some bands, I, might, I might know some of them. But like, you know, when I when I was growing up, I mean, I, I, I was really into those bands like Nirvana and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and all this stuff. And I remember this whole grunge brand. It was like wearing, you know, like lumberjack shirts and, and you know, these types of boots and, and, and torn jeans and all this stuff. And it's like, oh, this is grunge, you know. And then it's funny because like I saw a documentary on this whole movement and the people of Seattle were 
were like, we just found it so ridiculous that like we just happen to be people putting together music. And because this is how a lot of people here dress, because they do a lot of agricultural work and lumberjack work, it's like the corporations came in and just like took all of these symbols of clothing, of this, of that, and made it like a whole, you know, brand, so to speak. So, right. so, so it's almost like similar where, you know, it's anything, anything that has a source, you know, uh, is going to have a, a cultural um, uh, root to it. And so naturally any religion, I mean, we know this even for, let's say something like um, Buddhism, you know, many people who don't study religion, they assume, oh, Buddhism is like Chinese, but it's like, actually, it's from India. Um, right. and, and it had a cult, an Indian flavor. And when it went to China, it immersed itself with the Chinese um, cultures like Taoism and Confucianism. And then, and then it went to Japan, where they had their own heritage. And it kind of, you keep getting these cultural robes, if you will, as you describe. So, so yeah. you're saying what I'm hearing you say is, you know, there's a difference between the essence of the the concepts or the principles, um, and of course, everything has to come from a source, right? And yes. naturally, there's going to be some cultural paint or or gloss, if you will. But that's not always yeah. the same thing as Islam itself, because you know, a Pakistani might think, well, the way I practice Islam is the right way, and somebody who's in America doesn't you know who wears jeans and a polo shirt it's like oh i look at you and you're not like islamic enough so to speak right and that i mean and that's really dangerous when we look we look throughout and we look throughout and there's no doubt that some of that comes as a reaction to kind of post-colonial mindsets in the muslim world um and and people kind of taking pride in whatever they were whatever they had um and there's nothing wrong with their culture but this you know the idea that the the superiority of their culture is, is or their their culture is prime, while everyone else's is not, is 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 problematic. Without obviously toning that according to Islam. I mean, there are, let's take for example clothing. There are certain things that were mandated of us to wear loose fitting clothing, um, to wear clothing that is modest, that is not ostentatious, of uh, so on and so forth. And there's different details of that for for both men and for women. Um, but that doesn't say that, for example, we have to wear, uh, we have to wear a certain color or a certain style or however, you know, Ibn, Ibn Sa'd in his tabaqat, this is one of the early works of, of, uh, hadith that I'm not hadith, I'm sorry, early works of, of kind of biographical history. Uh, you know, he records in there in the first few volumes and this volume has actually been translated into English about the mothers of the believers and it records them, you know, that Um Salama, or um, it's been a long time since I read it, or Aisha, you know, they had a red skirt on with a dark top, um, you know. So it wasn't this, it wasn't this monolithic uh, dress code. And there's also been, you know, from the time of early Islam until the very late period of Islam. So if we say the early Islam, the time of the Prophet, where clothes were sent from Abyssinia, and he gave them away to some of his companions. When they wore them, he then said "sena sena," which is the Gi'iz word, the 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 old Ethiopian or old Amharic word for Hassan, for beautiful or or or, or pretty. Mm-hmm. And so, not only was the Prophet some, you know, having them wear clothes that weren't, weren't their own, but he was actually praising those clothes as well. Um, you know, in the late period of when Shirisi, uh, who his death date eludes me right now, but he wrote a book called Al-Mi'yar al-Mu'rib on Fatawa al-Andalus wal-Maghrib. So he's kind of the later Andalusian period 
where he was collecting the fatawa of scholars from Spain and and uh, and, and and Morocco, Tunis, uh, those areas. This is kind of you know right maybe right before, shortly after, during the fall of Al Andalus. Um, but you know he he's asked in there about wearing a Byzantine style, or he actually records a fatwa, an earlier fatwa. Somebody being asked about wearing a Byzantine style robe or a coat um, that people used to wear in the cold. And, you know, the fatwa, I actually wrote this, on, I wrote a short, short article on it on my website called, um, called It's Not What You Wear, It's How You Wear It, uh, emulation, emulation of Non-Muslims. So this whole idea of emulating the kuffar, emulating the disbeliever, um, which in, in and of itself, you know, it, there, there are guidelines for in the, in the religion. Um, but it doesn't have to do with things which are mundane or practical or pragmatic, functional, but more in issues of, 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 of faith and practice and so on and so forth. So, you know, he basically says, hey, is the coat functional? Does it serve a purpose? Are they the only ones who wear it? If, you know, if the answer is, 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 is yes and to uh, is it being functional and no to them being the only ones wearing it for a special purpose, you know, then yeah, it's fine to wear, uh, because what's expected to you is is to uh, you know is to wear what is um, Oh, you believe? Take that which is beautiful. You know, take your clothing which is beautiful at every place of prostration. So the believer is supposed to you know use what's available to him in the world and not um, not force himself into one thing or the other. So I guess my point is, you know, when if we use that as kind of a, you know, a, a case study in how other cultures were accepted, Muslim cultures before the colonial period were always very, um, and I would say even during the colonial period, were always very accepting of others. And it wasn't until very late when we got these ideas of, um, and, it, and it would it would need some research. Um, to see exactly when it happened, but you know, I would say probably from in, by the by the 1940s or 50s is when we started getting people using cultural markers as as things indicative of Islamic identity. Uh, right. And it happened, it's more politicized. Too, yeah, definitely, point. definitely, because it's a it's a reaction to an over you know an, an overarching culture that. Um, was kind of impressing itself and, and people being impressed by in the Muslim world, you know, so you know, people, right. people are wearing right. suits now and, you know, they're and all, all this kind of stuff is happening. And so, you know, what, well, what's Islamic, you know? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, even it plays out within the Muslim collective conscious. Like I knew a sister from um, Palestine and she was sharing with me a story about how, you know, she went to go visit her family on her way to do the pilgrimage, the Hajj. And uh, she went to go s hang out with some relatives and the relatives were like, oh, mashallah, when you come back from Hajj, you're going to become a hijabi. And she was telling me the story saying what's so funny is like my own uncle and aunt, you know, my aunt wears hijab, my my uncle has a, a, a kufi and a beard and holds his dhikr beads all day, but they don't even pray. 
And oh. it's like the, wearing the hijab was more about an Islamic political identity to differentiate oneself from the Israeli community. And, you know, I found that really fascinating that to such an extent that sometimes we take these quote unquote religious symbols, but they tend to be more of a branch or an extension of our political and cultural identity rather than an existential or spiritual claim. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, I think that I think you're right. Um, you know, that it, it, it does kind of play out like that. Um, you know, at times, at times, cultural markers, um, you know, can be something that people understand or that that use as as uh, as should I say pegs for their faith, right? Sure. Um, in, in 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 some, you know, and I know this specifically happens with converts who probably accepted Islam before the age of the internet, and the thing, the only thing that was really, re- you know, reaching them were were anecdotes and cultural markers and a few basics of the faith. So I have a friend, you know, he told me he met a guy who the only thing he knew about Islam was that Muslims wore a special hat and they read the Quran and they lifted their hands in prayer like more than three times a day or more. And that's all. Then this guy did that as, as his Islam for like 20 years because he lived in some small town where, you know, nobody ever came. And one day a Muslim came to town. And he said, okay, you know, I want you to, you know, you, I need you to teach me what I'm doing. This is all I know. So every day he would put on his kufi, open his Yusuf Ali translation of the Holy Quran, and read it and then make dua, morning, noon, and night. And he, that's all the Islam that he had. But that was, that was the, the uh, you know, that was, while, while the idea of wearing the kufi is obviously a cultural marker, Right. He was doing it out of some sign of love for Islam and wanting to to be devotional. Um, and even though he didn't necessarily understand uh, w- what that was or what it was about, um, so I think that you know it, it, it's it's apt for us to point out that at times cultural markers um, and practices do kind of act in a protective sense for some people. I always liken it to like the um, the blanket that Linus carries on the Peanuts cartoon, right? Um, you know, like a security blanket. Um, it doesn't have a function more than just being a placebo to allow people to um, feel comfort in what they're doing. And that can be in clothes, that can be in places. It was just in California, we were talking about uh, mosques and the yeah, other's a doctor, uh, Dr. Ahla Kahara, who's a professor of architecture and also teaches Islamic studies. He wrote a beautiful article about the function of architecture in promoting um, faith and identity. And uh, it's available, readily available on the internet. But he talks about how many mosques are not designed for the promotion of faith, but they're designed to create a feeling of security and a sense of home for people that are far away from their own. Uh, and that's where a lot of the tension comes in American Muslim, um, uh, communities, because when I come in with my pants and, a you know, my, my jeans and a t-shirt and somebody slaps a topi on my head, right. It's because I've broken, I've broken the sanctity of that, you know, that warp zone that takes people back to somebody, some place where they feel better about themselves. Um, not that it's necessarily a a mandate of of faith. Um, I always used to joke in that with because I grew up in Florida. I always used to joke that I was going to go and start a 
uh, message it on the beach and mandate that everybody wear like um, cut off cut off jeans and flip flops. <laughs> Subhanallah. So, I mean, I think what another way to kind of reduce what we're talking about here is it sounds like there's a difference between the essence of Islam and the form that it takes. And so, for instance, one of the essential principles of Islam is men and women should be modest in their dress and in their behaviors, right? Um, but how that form will take place, um, of course, there's going to be some variation and flexibility, while, while at the same time, there are certain things you just can't um, get get away from. And and what I mean by that is, okay, so, so let's say men and women have to dress modestly, um, whether you're in America, Saudi Arabia, or, you know, Gambia, the, the dress that women will wear doesn't have to be the same exact wardrobe, right? It's not like everyone has to wear black or everyone has to have color and, and the way they tie their hijab or not all men have to wear um, a kameez or whatever, but as long as you're you're following the essence of the sharia when it comes to how to cover and how to interact with the opposite gender, those are the basic guidelines, but sometimes that will manifest and change based on the context, right? So like something a little more nuanced, like, you know, showing respect in some Eastern cultures is you look down when you talk to an adult. Whereas in America, if you don't look someone in the eye, that's actually disrespectful and shows, you know, that I don't know if I can trust you, right? Or, right. or shaking a woman's hand in Saudi Arabia would be a complete no-no. Whereas in the United States, you know, some people might cringe at the fact that you're not willing to shake a woman's hand. So some men or women might say, well, I shake people's hands so you know how do we know where the line is between okay am i going against the essence of the religion or is this just a matter of it how it's manifesting based on the cultural context that i'm in yeah so you know you point to two great things i think you know um on the on the the issue of of kind of of um specifically on covering on like wearing a hat for men uh shaltabi he mentions i believe it's an artisan Shatibi was a, a an Andalusian scholar. Uh, he or Andalusian or, or, or Spanish origin. He he actually mentions. He says, you know, the culture of the scholars of the East. You know, so he's talking the Mashariqa. He's talking about people that are basically anywhere. You know, after after Tunis, right? After about midway to to, to through Libya. That's the that's the the Islamic East and the Islamic they're in the Islamic West. So you know he says the the the, the Easterners you know they they don't wear hats as children and then when they become an alim they wear a hat or a or a turban. Where for us Westerners we only only children in in Quran schools wear hats, and when a child graduates and 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 you know uh, and and finishes their studies, then they take off their hat or their turban. Uh, and there's there's talk. I mean, it, it it needs some research about the whole idea of you know the the uh, the graduate graduation cap being thrown into the air, kind of being connected to this. The idea of baccalaureus coming from the word riwaya in Arabic. Uh, I was surprised to actually find that etymologically there is some basis for that. But it just shows you how that was navigated. Um, you talk about, you know, something like uh, shaking hands with the opposite yeah. gender, um, and this is this is an issue that is discussed classically in books of uh, Islamic uh, law. Um, uh -huh. Probably one of the more thorough 
discussions of it is by Ibn Muflih in his book Al-Adab al-Shari'ya, um, which is a three-volume book about all of the different etiquettes of Islam. And he says, he, you know, I can give you the summary. The summary is basically scholars held three different opinions about um, about uh, shaking a woman's hand. Um, one of them said that it was uh, unequivocally prohibited, and they based that on certain texts. The fact that the Prophet ﷺ never shook hands, and even when he was taking allegiance from the tribes and women came, he did not shake their hand. Uh, he said, Inni la nisa, I don't shake hands with women. Um, and then there's a hadith in al-Tabarani, which is extremely different. It's, it, there's there's, there's there is a, 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 a large amount of difference of opinion uh, about its authenticity, that it's better to be struck in the head with a metal spike than to shake a, a, the, the hand of, of the opposite Ouch. gender. Um, yeah, I, per, I personally, you know, from my own research, uh, lean towards the opinion that that is not an authentic hadith and therefore doesn't really have any legal weight. Um, but they'll use that they'll use a hadith. So one group says absolutely not. Another group says that it's allowed uh, if there's some need. Um, if, for example, the custom of the marketplace is to shake on shake hands on a deal. Right. Right. Um, and in that case, they should use they should use a um, a glove or a cloth over their hand. Um, it should be said, however, that the proponents of that opinion felt that, that, that touching skin to skin of the opposite gender broke your wudu. So it wasn't really the issue of shaking the hand as much as it was breaking the wudu. And then the third group says, well, let's look at the, ra the rationale behind this. So there's agreement amongst all scholars, regardless of what opinion they take. If, if a young woman is um is you know is in or a woman is a woman who is young and beautiful and enticing to you then you should you you're not supposed to shake her hand and if a woman is is old and there's no desire to be had from her then it there's no harm in shaking her hand these are two points of agreement amongst them and the third, they say, okay, well, what about women in the who fall in the middle, which they call al-barza in Arabic, which means a woman who goes out, she goes to the marketplace, she does business, she's modest in her in herself, she is, um, she's you know uh, upholding the professional standards of a and the personal standards of a Muslim woman, but she's not, you know, the and obviously we're talking about you know medieval archetypes of of women, right? I think this is important to state, right? Um, we're talking about medieval archetypes of women that are mentioned in these books. We're not stating how people are today, uh, in, in, in all, uh, in, in all senses. Um, so, you know, you have the virgin who's at home and she covers her, you know, her face with the veil and she's extremely shy. You have the older, the elderly woman, um, which, you know, has, is, is beyond the age of marriage and, you know, no one would uh, would would be attracted to her, and then you have the person who kind of falls in the middle, the middle aged professional woman who goes out and does business, is modest but still has no problem approaching people and making a deal, getting things done, you know. So they held that while it was not permissible 
to shake the hand of the young, beautiful woman due to the fitna and the enticement that can occur. Uh, and it was a, a permissible to shake the hand of the old woman because of the lack of any enticement. In the, the shaking the hand of the woman who's in a professional situation, if there was some need to, while it may be disliked, it is allowed. And so this group is saying we have to look at the rationale behind the action and not just the action itself, because we don't have any unequivocal statement from the Prophet that is unequivocally authentic and unequivocally um, um, express in the prohibition of shaking hands between men and women. And therefore, uh, it goes back to this idea of fitna um, and, and the enticement that happens by the interaction of the sexes, um, just as believers are ordered to lower their gaze at times, right? Um, they're also allowed to look at times, just as uh, he also mentions in there a few tangential issues, like, for example, if if uh, if a woman covers her face, then it is permissible for her to show her face to people who need to ascertain her identity for either business or security reasons. Um, and it is uh, permissible for somebody to ask for that to be done. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm mentioning this issue because it kind of frames for us, it frames for us what, um, you know, where does, where does this idea of Dean start and where does, and where, do, where does it end? Where does culture start? Where does it end? And I think that in some areas, we are simply held to standards of conduct and those are not they are they they're not dogmatic you know bright line rules that that we are to um that we are forced or 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 expected to 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 do at all times um imam ahmed was asked you know uh you know a man and a woman are standing talking in the street you know is this khalwa is this seclusion he said well if they're in the middle of the street, then it's not seclusion, right? Because the Prophet ﷺ said that when a man and a woman are alone in a room, then the third of them is shaitan, right? So we obviously then understand that we should not be secluded with the opposite sex because of the, 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 the dangers of enticement. But if somebody's in a public place, like, the pla like a place of work where there's, you know, uh, you know, the expectation of modern monitoring and transparency and so on and so forth, then it's different. And people have to, and, and this is what I advocate for, people have to understand that, number one, you need to gain enough understanding of the faith and kind of the, the moral framework that's laid out by it to confidently live in your own skin as a Muslim. Um, I think that a lot of the, the, um, a lot of the conflict that happens in the minds of Muslims themselves is that they are strict adherents to something I call Sunday school Islam. <laughs> right. And 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 they they haven't you know they're 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 forty years old and they haven't learned anything past their Sunday school what they've learned in right. Sunday school, um, and that's fine if all you want to do is just say hey I'm just going to pray and fast and do my basics, and I'm not going to you know really worry about anything else. But if if you are worried about how your faith speaks to certain issues, then it really takes developing a level of religious literacy 
that you can't simply get from Sunday school. And that means applying yourself just as one would apply themselves in learning the latest about politics, about, um, you know, about social issues, about uh, technology, whatever it is, uh, then, you know, people should be willing to do the same for their faith if it is part and parcel of their identity. But I, uh, I think that, you know, all of this draws us into a, a necessary distinction in the, in the conversation about identity. And that is <clears throat> that Islam as a faith uh, uh, is primarily concerned about our actions, um, our faith and our actions, not our identity. Mm. And I, what, what I mean by that is that my culture and identity can change throughout my life. So... You know, if I, I remember one of my one, one scholar that I met who was born in Syria, but later left Syria and moved to uh, another Arab country where he was given citizenship. And when people would ask him, you know, what he what what are you? And he would say, I'm I'm a Moroccan. And they were saying, but no, you're from Aleppo or Damascus or wherever he was from. And he would say. Okay, fine, but I'm a, I'm a Moroccan. I'm a Moroccan, and it didn't click for a lot of people because nationality was still synonymous with with um, with place of birth, which was still synonymous with 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 faith, right? Mm -hmm. So um, our identities can change throughout our lives, but our faith remains the same. It remains kind of the anchoring that we that we that we use to you know keep ourselves uh, on the straight and narrow. Um, but those things may change from, from, from time and from place. Uh, obviously there's going to be certain things in the faith that are no goes, and there's going to be certain things that are flexible because there are no bright line rules. There's not unequivocal prohibitions or mandates to do those certain things. Um, but how do we, how are we going to know that it, it, only by gaining a level of religious, religious literacy that allows us to do so. And that's probably my, you know, my biggest gripe with a lot of people that, you know, talk on and a lot of them who even call themselves Muslim leaders here in the United States, and they're featured at conferences and things like that. They might be famous, they might have been on television or have done great things in their personal areas, but they're not necessarily speaking to Islam as a faith. They're speaking to Islam as a culture. Uh, one that is, one that is, an American culture informed by a, a informed by another culture, not an American culture informed by Islamic, um, uh, you know, faith-based morals and precepts. Right. So, just to kind of bring it into a context of of American Islam, like some people have a problem with that, right? Like, oh, I'm an American Muslim. Um, and I, I don't have a problem saying that. I mean, but I do get your point, which is very important that people's individual cultures and attitudes and values certainly can evolve, especially if you live in different cultures and countries and societies. Um, but at some point, you will probably hit a wall where 
to adapt or assimilate to that particular culture could mean changing the narrative or certain rules or principles about the religion itself, right? So, for example, premarital sex. Unfortunately, it's becoming more common amongst American Muslims. And instead of looking at it as, well, this, this American facet of how to be in relationship or what's, you know, common before marriage that I may embark on, I could sit here and say, well, you know, um, well, I'm more American. And so that's why I, I embark in these things, even though Islamically I know it's wrong. And there's people that acknowledge that and they know they're sinning because they still believe this is haram according to Islamic law. But then you have, of course, now situations where people are like, well, hold on a second. Since everything is, a lot of things are interpreted in Islam anyways, let's go back to these primary sources and try to almost change the narrative or come up with new interpretations, sometimes that have, you know, have never been formulated before in 1400 years. Of, right. of, of scholasticism and now all of a sudden it's like okay this is a new way to understand these actual first principles of the quran and sunnah um i mean there is a point where you are now just changing the religion and innovating if you will you're not actually reinterpreting it because you're now the form of what you're doing is taking away from the essence of the of that first principle like having modesty you know protection of family and lineage and and not breaking people's hearts and a lot of that comes with you know having sexual relations without any regulation so to speak yeah contravening contravening clear cut texts of the quran and the sunnah under the guise of of reinterpretation um I would say, you know, people are having premarital sex all over the world, even the sure, Muslim, sure. even yeah, in the Muslim, even in Muslim world. countries. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, and, you know, people are people are uh, having premarital sex. They're watching porn. They're involved in homosexuality and, and le lesbianism. They're drinking alcohol. They're using, you know, uh, narco you know, intoxicants, narcotics, that type of thing. Um, and I think that the the you know the 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 legitimization of those things by people in the United States under the guise of being American is just really weak. Mm. Um, and, and, the, and, and the reason being is because I, you know, as someone born and raised in the predominant, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture of the United States, can tell you that there are many people who do not involve themselves in premarital sex. They do not partake in, in drugs or alcohol. Um, and they do so out of a feeling of honor and a feeling of personal protection and a feeling of morality, whether that's informed by faith or not. Um, and so when I find Muslims who are saying, well, you know, we're just we're just adapting to the predominant culture. I mean, but are you really? You know, I, I have a, a good friend of mine who's a, a local education director at a, an Islamic center um, and, uh, was an imam for some time before that. And, uh, he's a Latino and, you know, I, it's funny. He was like, I don't know why all these Muslims are tripping out about Thanksgiving. We never, we never did Thanksgiving when we were growing up. It's not our thing. Right. So we sometimes project our own desires onto the popular culture to legitimize our own actions so that we don't have to deal with the moral conundrum of, you know, am I doing right or wrong in Islam? So we become kind of relativistic in that sense of, oh, there's no problem with any of it uh, because, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just practicing my my local culture and this is my local culture. Um, whereas 
on the other the other extreme of that and, and you know some people may do that and you know if somebody does that out of out of just not knowing out of weakness out of just wanting to fit in you know those are personal issues that they have to work through the problem becomes when as you mentioned rightly so that there's a there's a reinterpretation or an attempt at reinterpretation of of texts that uh, make the halal haram and the haram halal. In the hadith of Adi ibn Hatim, uh, عنه, who was a Christian who accepted Islam, um, it was from the north of Arabia, the area of Tay, Jabalay Tay, the two mountains of Tay. And uh, the Prophet والسلام, recited to him the verse, They took their rabbis and, and uh, monks as. Uh... As lords, I believe. Yes. Um, I'm, so the verse says, uh, They took their, their, their monks and their priests as lords other than God. And Adi said, uh, we, we didn't we didn't worship them we didn't make prostration to them and he said when they would make the halal haram and they would make the haram halal would you follow them in that and he said yes he said that was your worship right so there is something to be said about going against what is the what are unequivocal um you know, obligations and or prohibitions in Islam. Now, they may be few, right? They may be fewer than what people think. I mean, I think some right. people think like everything is haram, right? Um, but in reality, it's only a handful of things. Um, and obligations, likewise, are very few. Uh, the problem is, is when people will try to, in essence, extract from you know, this uh, Muslim legal scholars have, have talked about this. They say this principle, this hermeneutic principle, It is not permissible to extrapolate from a text something that would invalidate that text itself. Interesting. So you can't be a meat-eating vegan if you're reading the manual on veganism. Exactly. There's no way you can interpret that and be like, well, this is symbolic for animals. And so I'm, you know, the flesh is really just a symbol here. It's not the actual thing. So I'm going to eat meat, but I'm still going to, you know, preach, preach that I'm a vegan, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. It's like people say, you know, uh, you know, how are you a vegan? You're eating that steak. Didn't the, didn't the cow eat grass? I mean, I'm just <laughs> eating it in its processed form. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, no, I mean, have a few friends who are, who are devout vegans uh, and they find it good for themselves. But the difference between that, you know, and saying that, you know, you know, meat is haram is, is a huge difference. There's a difference between saying that I believe that processed food, you know, processed meat and, 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 uh, uh, what's the word that's used? Um, uh, you know, farm manufactured, you know, I, I, there's a specific non, word that you mean like the non free range. Yeah. Not, you know, like, yeah, like, uh, ma you know, mass produced meat factories. There's no doubt that there's many, many unethical things that happen in, in, in those. And, and, the abuse of animals and their mistreatment. And if a person said, you know what, I'm not even going to support that 
by eating meat, then, you know, uh, they can't be blamed for that. You know, Ibn Abd al-Barr, uh, he says uh, that if a person were to abstain from something out of protecting their personal piety, then no one can blame them for that. Um, the difference is when you start taking your personal piety and propping it up to the level of this is what God wants from you, then that's when you're innovating, you're engaging in a bid'ah. And in fact, uh, I believe it was a Shatibi again himself that that said that. Dr. Sherman Jackson has a uh, has a great article um, where he comments on Shatibi's uh, work. Uh, I forget the, the 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 name of it, but I'll I'll send you a link to the PDF. It's a small book that he wrote or a paper that he wrote uh, uh, several years ago. Um, that kind of spells out, you know, the, this difference in the English language. It's one of the better things about the subject written in the English language. Great. And, and Great. you know, so there's a difference between saying, I don't do this because of X, or I do this because of Y, and then and then saying, no, this is what God wants from me, or saying, God does not want that from me. You know, those are two wholly different things. And it's important that we, that we, um, we make a difference between those things, lest we fall into the you know the very real danger of um attributing to god that which we don't know which is again expressly prohibited in the quran right you know don't claim that which you have no knowledge of right um, which is why it's so essential to go back to you mentioned very two important points which i want to summarize here so number one is islamic literacy is of the essence right so we as muslim if you're a serious muslim right then seeking knowledge until the day you die and recognizing you're never going to stop learning is of the essence and so yes. naturally and this is something i found with i've worked with a lot of muslims and this is a very common pattern brother joe is yeah i'm like i'm sometimes shocked by the lack of islamic literacy or that like you said they, they haven't graduated past sunday school right and and then it's like they wonder why there's all these issues or concerns or, or misunderstandings or disdain towards certain things in the religion because they don't this concept of isn't really there yet like come into the deen fully which means you got to understand it holistically so that's a very important point that you highlighted here the second one is i love this example of the hadith you mentioned of this uh, christian sahabi who became muslim and how the prophet clarified that you know what we learn from this is that the word ibadah in islamic theology is is a pretty um full and broad term it's not just about prostrating yourself to somebody but the word ibad at least from my understanding includes not only servitude and service to the one you your master or the one you love but it also means adoration and obedience and dependence right and trying to do things which please the one that you worship um you know similarly if i told you you know i worship michael jordan you know you're you know i'm not probably worshiping some statue of michael jordan in my house right i mean right. You, you wouldn't be talking to me if that was the case <laughs> but but i mean what does it mean when i say that it's like oh you must love michael jordan he's your favorite player you've got his sneakers his his t-shirts his autograph you love watching his clips you know so there's this there's this devotional love and adoration and wanting to know and to cling and to bind to this object of worship and that's my understanding of how we're supposed to worship god so naturally if i know that god has clearly stated something isn't correct it doesn't matter how how i rationalize it or how i reinterpret it or water it down i'm no longer really worshiping god 
right? I'm, I'm worshiping whoever, what some intellectual construct or some leader or some speaker or some writer, because now what they had to say appeals to my own ego or my agenda more. And now I'm going to follow that. So that's actually a way where we commit a type of psychological idolatry, which brings me to this third point that I wanted to unpack with you a bit more before we end today is this idea of idolatry of Islam itself. So commonly people say to me, you know, what does Islam say? Am I going against Islam? And usually I ask them, well, let's call Islam up and ask them. You know, it's almost like this over-personification of Islam. And as you know, there are many, quote-unquote, you know, Islams out there with a lowercase i. And so that's one of the things I wanted to kind of explore a bit more with you today is, you know, clearly there's a difference between what is Islamic constructs versus what Allah and his messenger have made clear or brought to us. And is it correct to say that what we would call the Islamic tradition today is basically 1400 years of scholarship and effort of men and women to extract the essential principles and teachings and give them practical form based on the socio-political and cultural environments that they were in. Because as even today, you know, when we asked you some of these questions, you know, mashallah, you did a great job at referring to, you know, texts and scholars who have commented about these subjects. Um, mm -hmm. And and so usually we go back and we're like, okay, what did other people say about this that we trust and that have the scholarship and the, you know, uh, the background to answer these questions. And then we basically sometimes merge this or, or, or make it synonymous with, well, this is what Islam says, but maybe it's just what Imam Ashayuti or, or Imam Joe Bradford said, right? So there is, of course, a difference here between... Thank God I'm not an Imam. <laughs> well, there is a difference, right? And so is it correct to even say, like, would the Islamic tradition today is a human construct based on a divine... Uh, reality or principle, or how would you frame that in a, in, in, a, in a healthy way? I mean, that has to be that has to be picked apart about uh, you know a bit, and I think it's a it's it's ripe for a whole other conversation to tell you the truth. Um, but I, I do, you know, I do believe that much of what we call so not you know not Islam, right per se, as the 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 the, the overarching umbrella of faith. But much of what is considered Islamic uh, is a is a cultural, or it's a construct that grows out of people in using faith to inform certain ideas. Mm -hmm. And I'd say probably the earliest instance of of this uh, differentiation probably Abu Hassan al Ashari, uh, uh, you know, the great uh, theologian and scholar of the past. Who wrote a book called Maqalat al Islamiyin, the, the 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 statements, you know, or the 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 um, how can I? What's the word? Can I? You know, the the statements of the Islamists, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Islamic, the of the Islamics, you know, basically. And, and in this book, he's talking about all different types of sects and subsects and uh, ideological movements and political movements and people that are some way tangentially associated with Islam and Muslims, but are not necessarily speaking about Islam um, as, you know, authoritatively or in a primary sense. Um, and, I, and I think making those differentiations is important, but also not allowing this differentiation to allow us that in the name of our own cultural construct of, of, of American Islam 
to then deny the 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 unequivocal and or um, per, uh, you know predominant concepts of Islam to take place and take root in our lives in the United States. And I believe it was Abul Hassan al Nedwi who first warned of this. Uh, a few of his lectures are uh, translated online. Um, and these were lectures that he delivered, I believe, when he went to the UK. And, you know, and he warned of, of people, you know, tr you know, amalgamating or assimilating to the point where, you know, Islam as a, Islam as a, as a, as a overarching faith concept that informs all areas of life is lost to a cultural concept, which then, um, which then uh, takes, you know, uh, takes faith out of the picture. Mm -hmm. And I always tell, you know, people, you know, say, oh, you know, isn't this extreme or yada, yada, yada. I mean, I, uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, uh, concepts in Islamic theology, like jama'ah, you know, the congregation, al-ummah, the community, uh, the nation. Um, uh, when we talk about, you know, Islam as this, you know, as this broad set of principles that we follow, and I would just remind them that, you know, go and look at the, the last election and you will find that Christians of all stripes, whether they be evangelicals or Catholics or whoever, will all say, well, the kingdom of God comes before the kingdom of men. Mm -hmm. And what they mean by that is that their concept of, fa of faith and community informed by faith and their obligations of faith come before the obligations that they have to their fellow man. Their obligations to their fellow man are based, informed by their faith, and based upon the uh, benefit and harm that results from there. So, you know, uh, I'm here in Texas um, when the whole refugee um, um, problem, the pr refugee problems were flaring up, and they were saying they weren't going to accept refugees, and the governor tried to put a hold on refugees coming into the state. A lot of people don't know this, uh, but the it was Christians that stepped in and told. The governor, are you telling us we can't do the work of Christ in Texas? Because if you, are, if you are, we have a very large electoral, electoral block in the state. So just let us know if, if we can't practice the will of Christ. Uh, and then he suddenly, not, he didn't have a change of heart, but there was some political maneuvering, and then, uh, and then magically refugees come to Texas again. So, you know, I think we have to be very careful with with did not with you know um uh with saying that issues uh, of of islam or is, shall say you know islamic culture are um are merely informed by culture and uh in, and that's true in some sense uh and they are as you said you know constructs that were kind of created over time um at times they are constructs which are extrapolated they're derived from texts they're not informed by one any one specific text and they still hold the weight of having you know of of being uh, uh shall i say um of being uh, upheld and honored and revered by muslims um just because they don't have one specific verse one specific hadith but because they are derived from a corpus of uh, of you know indications from hadith, you know, like there are several 
you know, uh, several broader principles of, of Islam that this, you know, this applies to. المشاقة تجلب التيسير You know, hardship induces ease. This is a, this is a, 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 a principle of the faith, which is never, uh, it's, it's never vocalized in one specific place. But we have so many different instances that through induction, we can tell that this is a principle of the faith. Right? right, and that it applies in so many different areas, um, and, and and so I guess my 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 point being is that we have we have three things we have things which Muslims do that are informed or have kind of taken on an Islamic uh, nature mm-hmm. because of their connection to Muslims and their and, and Muslim gatherings and practices, um, it's kind of like the overuse of mashallah and alhamdulillah and subhanallah for everything right right um you know yes those are adhkar that are found in the primary texts but using them in those specific instances are not there's nothing to mandate them right but there's also nothing to 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 say that they're bad i mean it's like people uh um congratulating each other on eid right there's nothing from the Prophet that says congratulate each other on Eid. There's no Eid gra- congratulations from the Prophet. The Sahaba used to just say, may Allah accept from us and from you, right? But mm-hmm. if somebody comes and says Eid Mubarak, is this wrong? No, because it feeds into the larger strain of culture which supports the practice, practice of faith but and does not contravene it or denigrate it. Right. Right. And that's different. That's different than the the practice of culture that that contravenes faith and denigrates it. Like we find, you know, uh, unfortunately, in some Muslim lands, you know, they'll have uh, tribal tribal councils and, 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 and tribunals that are set up by tribes in their area, which then come and they they will make the most heinous of judge heinous of judgments against people in these areas and people say oh look what the muslims are doing and look what islam does no that's just muslims giving their tribes and their cultural norms primacy you know things like you know this guy married the wrong person you know go and throw acid on on the girl or something you know disgusting like that uh this happens at times from tribal councils that are not ruling by islam they're not informed by islamic morale morality or law but they are Muslims, and they're looked at as being in the Muslim land. So then, that becomes synonymous with with right. being Muslim. What right. Muslims do. Right. So, I'm I'm, ta- I'm saying that as a very extreme example to show, you know, how badly, you know, how badly culture can inform something which is then looked at as being Islamic in popular culture. Um, and then you have the Eid example, right? Which it doesn't contravene, it doesn't denigrate. Therefore, it's allowed. You know, half of the Ibn Hajari wrote a whole book about a role, small treatise about this. Uh, and then you have things which are not informed by any one particular hadith or ayah or nas, right? You know, text of Islam, but they are informed by a corpus of the texts and they're kind of understood from that. Then those are to be upheld as well. And that's what we call ghalabat al-dhan, mm-hmm. predominance, a predominant assumption that this is what is wanted from us. Uh, and then you have things which are qat'i, they're unequivocal, unequivocal. Those are the things that we find that are the, you know, the big issues of Islam, right? 
worshiping God alone, not worshiping anyone else. You know, obedience to the prophet, praying your five prayers, fasting Ramadan, um, not, you know, not committing murder, uh, you know, things that are, you know, they're, they're, the, they're the big issues um, that no one can necess- no one can really deny. Um, and the danger is, is that now we have people that are saying, hey, guys, let's uphold, you know, these tribal issues that are synonymous with what Muslims do and not let, not uphold these big unequivocal issues that are, or, or t- attacking those those larger unequivocal issues as something that is merely interpretive. Um, so it's it's really a um, uh, really kind of contradiction in terms when you see that coming from the same people. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's all, I'm almost hearing you say like, okay, there's things that are, so what is Islamic? There's obviously things that are Islamic based on the clear stipulations or principles from the Quran and Sunnah. Then there's things that are Islamic that could be um, reflections in a culture that don't contradict the Quran and Sunnah. So for instance, going and feeding the hungry at your local church as a Muslim, there's nothing religiously wrong with doing that, right? Even though some, exactly. there might be some Muslims who are like, oh, astaghfirullah, you're going to a church. It's like, dude, I'm fulfilling a principle that all the prophets taught, right? Jesus, Muhammad, Musa, peace be upon them all. So this, that's not an issue. Or moms against drunk driving, right? Or whatever. Right. It's give like, you another so- example. Uh, just just this Saturday, this past Saturday, I was in um, Southern California for the first annual Converts Conference, and it was a conference that was organized by converts and people that work with new Muslims um, and targeted at them and all of the topics that were there. And obviously, the question comes up: What about going to our non-Muslim families' funerals? So you know, you ask the average, you know, you know, mpawa, molvi you know, Muddayin, whatever you want to call them in, in, in various different Muslim cultures. And they may tell you, oh, no, you know, you, you shouldn't do that. You're, you're, you shouldn't do that. But when we look to Abdullah ibn Abbas, the companion of the Prophet, one of his students who had relatives who were not Muslim, that non-Muslim, one of those non-Muslim relatives died. He came to class sad. So what he said for, he said, well, my relative died. He said, well, what are you doing here? What harm would it have done you to go and stand with the body and follow it until it had been placed in its grave. So, you know, to to attend a fa- family member or a friend or whoever's funeral, as long as you're not engaging in scholars commenting on Ibn Abbas's statement, said, you know, as long as you're not engaging in issues of shirk, of ascribing, uh, uh, you know, ascribing partners and worshiping partners, other part, you know, other people other than Allah, uh, then it's the honorable thing to do. A man passed by, a funeral pr- pr- procession passed by the Prophet ﷺ, and he stood up. And somebody said, and the hadith right. is uh, in Bukhari Muslim as well as in Nasa'i. And the Prophet ﷺ, uh, you know, they said, what, this is a Jewish person's funeral. And he said, Alayset nafsan, is it not a soul? So, um, you know, that's that that kind of tells us, you know, this, you know, false sense of identity through pietistic antagonism is many times at odds with the principles of faith itself. Right. In in other words, anything that's going to take away from your humanism, right, is probably not a good sign. 
you know Probably, yeah. um i mean that that's i think uh, obviously can be explored based on case by case but that's something that i've i've kind of uh taken away from from some of your reflections now madam joe it's been a wonderful uh discussion so far i, I want to get you back on for part two to talk more about american islam and, and these ideas about culture thank you so much for for your thoughts and reflections and looking forward to recording part two with you soon great sounds good i i'm, I'm looking forward to it. thank you so much for having me on Kareem Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit nurhuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. That's patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem.